those are actually some of our favorite types of clients. And that's mentioning those early projects. All of our early projects were physician-sponsored and partnered with a physician. So we would bring equity to the table to the extent they needed it. But almost every time, the physicians were, were provided ownership, even if they didn't contribute equity, just because of recognition of that value that with without their 10 or 15-year lease to kick off the project, there is no project. And likewise, even on um, acquisition work, uh, if there are entrepreneurial physician groups that would like to participate or they, they have a desire to be um, a participant and invest, uh, I love that alignment. This is the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast, the podcast that brings together leaders in healthcare and investment real estate to consider the possibilities in future at the intersection of practicing medicine and healthcare real estate investment returns. Welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. I am your host, Tricia Talbot. As a healthcare real estate advisor to providers and investors, the best solutions occur when the two collaborate together as partners in delivering better patient care. Providers can deliver care to their patients when and where they need it, and investors realize the returns to build and manage facilities. We explore changes in medicine and wellness, the future of healthcare, and using real estate as a strategic and financial tool. In this week's episode of the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast, I interview Patrick Wathan, Senior Vice President at Equity, a full-service commercial real estate firm headquartered in Columbus, Ohio, with various offices nationwide and transacting in even more markets. We learn about how Equity got started, its path into the healthcare real estate asset class, and some of the philosophy behind Patrick's leadership style. So I hope you enjoy the interview. Next week, we start a few episodes where we showcase the best listened to episodes of 2020, and I hope you enjoy them. Thank you. Patrick, welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. Thank you for your time with this interview. Yeah, excited to be here. Thanks for asking me to, to join you. So uh, let's start with a little background on equity. What What is the background story behind equity, and how did it start to focus on the healthcare asset class? Yeah. So um, I'm actually the second generation uh, involved in equity. So my father founded the company uh, in 1987 and um, started actually accumulating assets when he was at Ohio State University. So we're based in Columbus, Ohio still. And he and a fraternity brother borrowed some money from their parents and you know rehabbed a residential property and started started that. His vision was always commercial. So Ended up rolling those assets in 1031 into commercial assets in the late 80s and starting to build that portfolio and kind of always had a vision to be a full service commercial real estate company. So for us, that means um, everything from consulting and brokerage through development, construction, property management, asset management, and investing uh, is kind of all vertically integrated. And we started getting into healthcare actually very, very intentionally. This is one of the things where I've had an opportunity to learn a lot. From my father, I think he's been very visionary, but he was reading at the time he founded the company about the generational um, you know, scale and the, I guess what that would represent as his generation, the baby boomers were aging. So he looked at, um, and coming out of the savings and loan crisis and a challenging time for commercial real estate, he was looking for something that would be recessionary resistant and that would kind of take the company through his whole career. And uh, he, he decided that healthcare was that thing. So he actually took out a an ad in the Columbus business uh, newspaper, you know, saying that we're partnering with physicians and doing healthcare developments. And we hadn't done a single healthcare development at that time. So that was the early nineties, which, you know, kind of 
Fast forward to our first handful of projects, we're typically single practice, build the suit projects for local physicians and starting in Columbus and then throughout Ohio um, and kind of just grew from there. So that's kind of initial nutshell of origin story into uh, healthcare interest was just trying trying to find something that would uh, would go the distance. And that's proved to be obviously exceptionally good, um, you know, given what's happened to healthcare over the last 20 years and certainly the last 15 or 10. Well, and you guys are in a couple of different um, asset classes. So what what about healthcare? Obviously, you know, the long-term tenant returns and all of that, but what have you like learned that is particularly different investing in healthcare properties than maybe some other asset classes? Yeah. So we we are still active in other uh, segments. So our other kind of largest chunk of assets, probably 30-ish percent of the portfolio that we manage the business we do is in the retail space, which um, is primarily service and, uh, you know, service, food, not, not generally big box, junior box, hard good stuff. So we still very much like that space. Um, we've also been kind of at the the merging point of healthcare and retail, right? As the 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 two seem much more synonymous now, certainly than they have at any previous time. But you know, healthcare obviously the long term leases are attractive. I mean, some of the stuff I, I learned very early early on in healthcare leasing versus retail, right? It's like three and five year leases versus five, seven, ten year, fifteen year leases, depending on what you're doing. So that long term security, and then just the the infrastructure that's invested. So you know, kind of the story is my father would tell it is that as when we got into healthcare, it was kind of a bastard asset class because of the specialization, because of the challenge in repurposing it. But but that's also the positive that once a healthcare practice makes that investment, right? You put two or three hundred dollars a square foot into a surgery center, moving that is tough, right? It's expensive to move. Um, you know, so that longevity, even if the lease term is only five or 10 years for some of the tenants, the average practice still only moves once every, you know, 21, 22 years. So um, so obviously, we we love that. More recently, we've really benefited from the amount of capital trying to seek healthcare <laughs> assets. So you know, we have been a, a net seller over the last probably five or six years, just because if, it, if I had a crystal ball and said that the cap rates are going to compress next year, I'd probably disagree with it. But that's probably <laughs> what will happen. Um, so now we we love the asset class, and frankly, I love the kind of the nuance and the challenges of the healthcare ecosystem. You know, starting out in 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 brokerage, at first it looks like it's kind of more expensive build out of general office. But when you're going to do it at a high level, you have to understand the interaction of the the tenants with each other, the kind of referral stream, the local political landscape with the health systems and um, kind of the ecosystems that they build. And 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 I love that piece too. Um, sometimes I don't love the regulatory risk of trying to understand what you know what the future holds but um right. but it's a very interesting asset class to be involved in and and you know continues to I guess hold our interest after you know, 25 or so years of focusing on it and if you start working with like a group of private practice physicians that you know they're they're quite entrepreneurial how do you guys address um you know if they want to stay invested in their property but they'd want a partner to take the quote unquote real estate part off of their hands but you know they add the value as a as a tenant, and they want to still invest in themselves. Yeah, those are actually some of our favorite types of clients, and and that's uh, you know mentioning those early projects. All of our early projects were physician sponsored and partnered with a physician, so we would bring equity to the table to the extent they needed it. But almost every time, the physicians were were provided ownership, even if they didn't contribute equity, just because of recognition of that value that with. Without their ten or fifteen year lease to kick off the project, there is no project. And likewise, even on um, acquisition work, 
if there are entrepreneurial physician groups that would like to participate or they have a desire to be a participant and invest, uh, I love that alignment. I mean, you think of it, it's already a fairly sticky situation, right, with their infrastructure, like we talked about, but you get to the point where they're also an investor uh, and they're a true partner. We, we really like that alignment. And there's all different ways to do that um, from the very basic where when we're doing a project with a physician group, there's a piece of the carried interest that they get for you know being the sponsor for signing the, that long-term lease to kick it off down to um, like on our fund company side where we have a lot of physician investors, they're pure LPs and maybe none of their real estate is in the fund, uh, but they still understand the asset class. They still like it and want to be invested in it. Yeah. And I think, um, well, first, I think it gives them skin in the game too, where they're invested in it. Um, like you said, you know, keeps everybody committed to the success of the project. But I think that, you know, investing in healthcare real estate, it's something that they can understand. So, you know, if you have the options like the funds where they can invest in another property, take the proceeds from, you know, if they're going to sell, for instance, if they sell you a property and take those proceeds and roll them into one of your funds, they can take a look at the property and understand it pretty easily and don't have to do a whole ton of homework, I find, which, yeah. they you know, they can't do because they just don't have the time. Well, and, and it's uh, what I love, too, is... Um, you know, and it's kind of a joke I tell people is that, you know, somewhere in med school, every doctor was told they needed to own real estate, right? It's just, it's somewhere it gets baked in, it gets slipped in, maybe it's subliminal, but, um, and, and, I, and I do believe that's true. I think they should participate in the real estate, but depending on the practice and what their goals are, the real estate can be a useful tool for them as well with, you know, we, we've used the real estate as a recruiting tool for the practice where they're they're seeking to add new partners. So when we build a new building, a piece of the attraction to gain those new surgeons or to get those new partners on board is you get to participate in this project as well. We've also helped use it as a mechanism to cash out retiring partners, right? So you look at a couple of docs that are ready to just go spend time on their boat or at their beach house or whatever. And so we can monetize the real estate, but then with the way, you know, as we've talked about the way we participate with the docs, those that want to stay in can still stay in. It's more like recapitalization to buy out the the former partners, let some new partners buy in. So I, I enjoy that piece too, because you're coming alongside them and helping them understand and figure out how the real estate is more than just an investment fee, but it's also a tool for their practice to be more successful in other ways. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the biggest thing is when they look at those tenant improvements, building those out, maybe starting, you know, opening up a new site and then the physical real estate, that's a ton of capital outlay, which sometimes, you know, their cost of capital affords that. But, you know, if they could have a capital partner that has some lessons learned, has relationships in the market with contractors, architects, streamline things, you know, it really does save them some one-time headache, effort, and money at the end of the day for maybe just not knowing a couple of questions here and there that would have saved them a lot of, of heartache. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and we found, I actually had a, a doctor, I won't, I won't repeat what he said because it got a little vulgar, but he had done a development project. And I asked him, we, we actually acquired it from him. Uh, this was a, I don't know, 30, 30 ish thousand square foot project in Atlanta, some really cool buildings. And um, I said, so, you know, now that we're buying you out of this thing and he didn't want to stay. And I said, are you going to go develop another project? And then he said some choice words around what his wife would do to him if he tried to develop <laughs> another project. Right. And that was his, his first experience, but he went to the loan. He was the developer while he was practicing full-time. He's the leader of his practice as well. And it, it's a lot to take on when you when you look at it. It looks simple. It's like I'll build a building and I'll lease it to some other tenants and and I'll be a developer. But there's a a, a ton to that. And any one of those mistakes, as as you well know, you you can make a mistake that costs you 
five grand or a mistake that costs you 50 or 500, depending on the scale of what you're doing and that you don't know what you don't know when you get into it. So. All right. Absolutely. I think letting them know that there's a whole industry out there to help them, um, you know, it's kind of one of my missions. So let's talk about locations. Um, and I just have to make a plug because I'm, I'm married to a Wolverine. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> so equities offices, they're concentrated, you know, in the Carolinas, Florida, Ohio, Texas, but you look for opportunities nationally. So, and you, you know, you're full service, but you also acquire. So where do you focus kind of all of your different functions of your, of your company? It kind of depends on what the service line is. Um, so as you mentioned, we have physical offices in several different locations. It's very easy to vend to the full platform of services from those offices. But for instance, you're in the Phoenix market. My closest office to you is maybe Austin, Texas. Uh, we're not going to be a, a GC in that market, right? And we're not going to we don't have a subcontractor relationship, all those things you said before about the good advisor team, right? We're not going to come in and say, I can build it. I may be able to provide program management or owner's rep services there where I can, if it is a project we're doing, I can insulate my risk as an investor by having a trusted advisor run as an owner's rep. But generally speaking, we vend the full services in each of our markets where we have a physical office. And, and we kind of view those as entire states, but then typically we'll spread to call it a one state radius around those markets. And that's maybe a little different for Texas because depending on what direction you drive, it's a huge state or you know, we don't do a lot in South Florida, partially because it's the market dynamics in Miami are much different than call it Tampa, Orlando, which are more synonymous with you know the mid-tier markets we, we do work in. And for certain opportunities, we'll stretch further. So on the acquisition front, and obviously we, we'll get to talk about our acquisition yeah. in your market, right? Absolutely. Um, we outsource to what we feel are best in class local partners when we we stretch. So although I could have, you know, my property management team do that fully, I, I know that that won't be the best. And um, we we want to be a best in class owner operator. And the other service lines, again, I'm not going to say that I'm going to build something in a market that's you know three states away. On the acquisition front, it some of it depends on scale and lease structure. So we chased a deal really hard last year in Boise, Idaho. Um, that's super far away from our office. I've had two trips already this year to Washington State for different client engagements. Now, if there's an absolute net single tenant opportunity with a client out there, sure, I'll do that. There's not a lot of operational risk or management risk. We understand the market dynamics fairly well in those markets from kind of the advisory side of the business and can place a bet on an acquisition in a market like that, or if there's enough scale. So we have a couple, you mentioned Michigan. Um, we've got a couple of assets in Grand Rapids, which is a great market, but it was it was of enough scale. It was about a 30, 35-ish million dollar acquisition, of, I guess three building portfolio, um, that it was worth it to us to, to stretch up there, even though it's you know, not a super easy market to get to from Columbus, Ohio. You either fly to Chicago and then connect or you drive from Ohio and it takes the same amount of time either way. Um, yeah. So, you know, we, we, we don't necessarily, uh, I, I would usually tell people we try to focus East of the Rockies just for time zone convenience. You know, those trips out to Washington state eat a whole day coming back. So try to avoid that if I can. Yeah. Um, but it's a lot of that kind of work that I mentioned that takes us to far flung places is driven by our client relationships with physician groups. To the point where if we're a trusted advisor for them and they say, hey, we've acquired some practices in Seattle, I'm like, great, let's let's go. How can we help you there? Right, exactly. So 
you know, we'll move to acquisitions because that's where you and I, you and I met here. But what does equity look for in a healthcare property? It's looking to acquire, you know, size, pr- price range, tenant mix, all the good stuff. So we would usually classify ourselves and tell people that we're we're a boutique operator in terms of our our scale. So for instance, our current fund size is twenty five million dollars. That's you know relative to most of the P shops out there, institutional buyers. We're, we're not them. So generally speaking, we can flex down, we can do smaller projects. I don't try to, but in our current fund, we had an asset that we wrote, a, I think a six or $700,000 equity check. So very small. That was a single tenant op- ophthalmology surgery center. Um, but that was also a client relationship. So I can stretch downward. That's maybe not ideal. I'd say our bread and butter is in the call it five to maybe $15 million range. But what we've seen is some of the, as the institutions have more and more capital, they keep squeezing downward and downward into our space. So where I, I could say before, maybe 15 million wouldn't be something that a lot of the institutions would look at. Now they absolutely will. So, you know, maybe it becomes more that five to 10 million, which is our sweet spot. But we try to be, I would say an institutional quality operator, but at a boutique scale. So we actually have a, a thesis for next fund where we'd start to look even smaller intentionally, just because we think that there's an opportunity to aggregate and create some strong diversified yield with smaller scale assets that are less competitive. Because for us as a developer, it benefits us that the cap rates are crazy. As an acquirer, obviously it's it's opposite. <laughs> it's challenging. Right. So when we're um, trying to hit a high high single digit yield in terms of a cash on cash basis for our investors, I, I can't go pay five and a half and six caps for stuff to make that work, um, which kind of necessitates that smaller scale. Although, as I mentioned with the Grand Rapids example, Although I tell people where our sweet spot is, it seems like about once a year, we choke down something that's a lot larger that's in call it that 20 to $50 million range. And if we go much beyond that, then we're bringing in other capital partners. So we've done you know, joint venture deals or, or JV equity deals with probably most of the institution that you're familiar with at one time or another or have exited to them. And, and again, because they're all very aggressively seeking product, if I come to them and say, hey, my fund is only going to do 30% of this deal, do you want the other 70? And they probably say yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Especially if you've done all the homework and they just have to, you know, review it and <laughs> yeah, all of that. Yeah. We, we try to make it easy if it's, if, if it's a financial partner, because we're, we will have done all our, yeah, all our homework at that point, the underwriting, um, the tenant interviews, all that kind of good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Let's move to, you know, the acquisition that we met on here in Tempe, Arizona at 6,200 South McClintock. So uh, what attracted you to that opportunity? Well, I'd been on your your email list for several years, and you know, obviously, just wanted to do a deal with your team. So, you know, frankly, and that that's something I've complimented you all on is um, is the focus and the depth of knowledge that makes interacting. on, I mean, look, even from the first reach out, and um, just to be clear, everyone, she didn't ask me to give a glowing review or anything, but um, being able to work with somebody that understands the space intimately and knows what they're doing is really refreshing sometimes, and. Um, so part of it was that we'd been uh, targeting Phoenix actually for a while. So we, on the advisory side, we had done a rollout going back into probably I'm trying to think maybe 20, 2011 to 13 or 14 of bringing FastMed Urgent Care across the market after they made an acquisition, I think it was called Urgent Care Express. So they bought a five-unit operator. We were handling all of their real estate. So we helped them primarily on the brokerage side rollout. So we got to know the market really well. There's a lot that we really like about markets like Phoenix. Some of it is, um, I mean, and this is more as I've matured, some of it's just the temperament of the people that there's there's good people to deal with in that market. Um, but a lot of it is the the population growth. I mean, we're usually looking for places that have economic tailwinds. And we actually had chased a couple of deals in 
Phoenix over the last three years that fell through. We also really like dental. And that project, if you look at it, I mean, it's you know not a brand new class A building by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a very stable, well-maintained, good occupancy history, dental-focused, dental-anchored project. And so when you have dental, the affiliated kind of dental specialties between you know oral surgery, things like that, and a building that in that particular case, which was a first for us with a building that small, having centralized vacuum and stuff like that, just very specialized build out that makes it easy and attractive for those tenants. And we really like the physical position as well. So I'm kind of, um, when I meet somebody, they're like, real estate's location, location, location. I'm like, no, it is, it is not depending on the product type. Retail, maybe. But some of those fundamentals translated to this building, when you look at that intersection where two of the opposing corners have grocery anchored shopping centers, you've got great traffic counts. The property is close to the street and has good, good visibility, right? It's not retail type visibility, but it's one parcel off the hard corner. So kind of from a fundamental real estate standpoint, we liked it as well. And so kind of combination of those things, we've been looking for something in the general MSA, met our size parameters, we were able to acquire it with, you know, I guess, good enough fundamentals. It's not going to be the, I guess, shining star in terms of overall yield in that portfolio, mm-hmm. um, but really stable, low risk. So when we talk to our investors and we we project a range, probably as a lot of people do, that our, our returns are from X to Y, this may be towards the low end in terms of yield of what we're looking for, but we feel very, very strongly about the risk level or the lack thereof. Yeah. And the tenants in their imaging and dental, like you said, I mean, going back to the beginning of our conversation, um, you know, they're very sticky. It's very expensive to move. And I, I think dental, they're trying to do different things to make the build out less expensive. But, you know, when you have the gases and water mm-hmm. and all of that, I mean, it's just it's hard to cut corners and yeah. and function. So and then imaging, I mean, that's a huge cost to build out. So, you know, I think the the stickiness factor of the tenants in that building are definitely long-term. Yeah. And in the dental space in general, I mean, in most markets we operate in, the failure of a de novo dentist is less than 1%. So you look at established dentists that, and even through the pandemic, right? This is a question a lot of people ask is, well, what was it like during the pandemic? It's like, well, all it did was create a backlog because the person that maybe canceled their routine cleaning uh, rescheduled it for later. So we did have a situation where there, some of our clients had two and three and four month waiting lists to get an appointment just because right. the they, they had to catch up. They had to catch yes. up. I did that with my own dentist where I it was probably around like January at right after Christmas. And I went in to schedule my appointment and I had to wait until the middle of uh, last month to just for a cleaning. Right. And it's just, yeah. so they, they perform very well, very solid, low failure rate. Um, and we also like the kind of the broader market dynamics or the macro environment of dental right now, where there's a lot of acquisition activity. So, there's a chance that there's credit enhancement as well as one or two of those practices gets pulled into a larger group that when we go to exit in, in a few years would, would be a good story to tell. I'm seeing a lot of that. I'm seeing, um, and it, it goes in cycles, but uh, with ophthalmology, I'm seeing a ton of acquisitions huge. and consolidation. It's huge. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I think if uh, some people did not weather the pandemic very well, they're, they're probably trying to find partners to, to make some of the, the overhead and, and that sort of stuff uh, less cumbersome. 
yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But yeah, I mean, one thing you said about our team, I think the one thing that investors like yourself value is, you know, we really get to know the tenants on any acquisition that we that we get, because that's the part. I mean, you guys are are doing capital sources and you've got, you know, your resources are a bunch of different asset classes. And what we offer is, you know, really being able to tell you the stuff that's not on the spreadsheet, a little bit about the tenant, their history, uh, just because we've we've lived it. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and again, that's that's clear. Right. Yeah. And and to work with a partner, too, whereas we look to grow within that market where we can tell you a little bit about what that criteria is and the stuff that you bring to us is qualified and, and, and meets that because um, yeah. there, there's a lot. And, you know, we were kind of joking before we got on the uh, call here about the managing the inbox and stuff that, you know, <laughs> there's so much stuff you just have to delete. Right. Getting some emails that are worth reading is good from time to time. <laughs> Well, we try to call first and let you know that, you know, this asset's coming on the market so you can, you know, sharpen your pencils. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I know we've all, so, I mean, obviously this last year and, you know, I think this year everyone's trying to to figure out a little bit of lessons learned from the pandemic. But if you, if you look ahead three to five years for equity and some of the things that you guys, you know, have learned, where do you, where do you see your vision maybe shifting a little bit or changing in order to either recover or grow, maybe grow is a better word, grow from, from anything that you experienced during the pandemic. So in our kind of across our spectrum of services, there were a couple of things like brokerage activity, especially in general office, right. That was hit pretty hard. Basically the breaks, breaks were hit. So our overall brokerage activity as a company is probably down 25 or 30% uh, from where we thought we would be, but we, yeah, frankly, our, pretty happy about that result, <laughs> given the, the situation and what it could have been. Right. Um, construction and development activity depends on what stage it was. So some of the things continued right on through, because if you're, you've already broken ground and your financing's in place, you can't you know pump the brakes. You just have to roll through it. We have a little bit of a lull right now, which is basically a result of the construction purchasing decision-making that was happening this time last year. So if people were in earlier stages and they pump the brakes, there's a gap here. But what we're seeing is that that's mostly picking up by the second half of the year, kind of across those longer decision timeline projects. Because if they were put on hold, whatever company it is still had a desire to grow, has a desire to grow. So um, again, Gen Office, which we don't do a lot of, is still in the weird phase of what's after COVID. Healthcare is mostly right back to normal. Retail is a different, more complicated conversation. But as, as we're on a healthcare-focused conversation <laughs> here. We'll, we'll stick mostly yeah. to that. So um, as we roll forward, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier, starting to aggregate some smaller scale assets as well and targeting yield. So we've been in a really low yield environment and a lot of our investors, although I mentioned we have phys- physician investors and other than just some high net worth in- investors and some family offices, a lot of investors that are coming through registered investment advisors and wealth planners and tailoring a product to that audience, which is just providing strong yield. So when they look at a fixed income portion of their portfolios that they're trying to craft for their clients, they have to stretch into some really risky stuff to get yields that are even middle single digit returns. And if I can give them a high single digit return in a diversified base of healthcare assets, that sounds pretty good to them. So it's still an alternative asset in terms of how they would view it, but shaped and molded more like something that that fits a need that they'd like on a fixed income side. So um, that that for us means looking at two and three tenants stuff and you know maybe stretching down to you know six to ten thousand square foot projects instead of our normal threshold, we'd like to be above 20 as it stands today. 
Um, some of that means making sure that our back office is efficient so that we can process and handle more properties. So a lot of that means investing in infrastructure and automation as we grow and scale that shifting from manual process as much as possible to things that automatically go through software systems and things like that. So a lot of back office investment related to that. And then as we look kind of in the healthcare landscape, really for the next, I don't know, I don't want to say forever, but next 20 to 30 years, we're definitely going to be in an environment where healthcare demand continues to increase as the, the graying wave, the baby boomer population is going to spend their maximal amount on healthcare uh, that they have in their entire lifetime over the next 20 to 30 years. So beyond that, you know, hopefully if we were a successful second generation family company, that might be my kid's problem to figure out what, what happens after that. But, you know, as it stands right now, we're really excited about the future of healthcare. I'd also say is, you know, kind of mentioning that we've been looking, you know, in, in uh, Phoenix MSA as an example of building some density in markets where we've gotten a toehold. So for instance, I've got a a couple of assets in the Atlanta MSA. I really like the growth trajectory of call it suburban Atlanta bedroom communities where there's really high year over year pop growth, but building some density so that we can have a little bit more efficiencies from an asset management standpoint. The ideal scenario for me is someone on my asset management team physically touching each of the assets a couple times a year. That's really hard to do right now with without some additional density. Yeah. I think, uh, like you said, not not so much Southern Florida, but I think mid Florida, those population demographics, you know, they're just continue to grow as well. It's really fantastic. That, that's another thing. And I um, try not to praise my dad too much. He probably won't listen to or watch this anyway, but um, <laughs> he was very deliberate with us being an Ohio based company and he's from Cincinnati. So our first office expansion was Cincinnati and then Dayton. But then he started looking strategically of, you know, where can I go to get better than one percent year-over-year population growth, and so that right. meant kind of leapfrogging the Midwest to Tampa as our Southeast regional headquarters, and then after that, heading over to Austin, Texas, and establishing those footholds in those really high-growth markets. Yeah, I don't think you can make a bad decision in them. It's it's hard to. I mean, you can, but yeah, but it's hard to. So we're going to move to the part of the interview where we get to know you a little bit. What was your first job? Uh, my first job was a paper route. And starting with the community newspaper and then to the Columbus Dispatch, our big you know, metro newspaper. And um, I can't believe that my parents supported me in that because my paper route wasn't even, it was near our neighborhood, but it was not our neighborhood. So I had to get my mom up at 4 a.m. to drive me over there so I could walk my paper route, um, which the, the hindsight, especially as a parent now is like, wow, like that's, <laughs> that's some for, love. <laughs> for, for years. Yeah. For several years. And um What's amazing, you know, looking at that as like a seventh, seventh or eighth grader making four hundred bucks a month on a paper out. It was like a, a a king, but that was that was very, I don't know, formative. I've always been kind of an early riser, kind of had to be for that job. But then I went out to a job fair to get a you know quote unquote real job at a local water park and went with my my high school buddies. We were all going to be lifeguards for the summer. It was going to be fun and all that. And then um, I came home from that all excited to tell my parents I got a job. And my dad said, well. How about you come be a laborer on a construction site instead? It'll be a better experience for you. And um, it it was um, you know sweeping the floor, picking up the trash, moving piles of materials, basically being the low man on the totem pole. And um, but got to see from pouring of the concrete. This was on a um, orthopedic surgery center here in Columbus. And then basically that started a tradition of every summer through high school. So that was when I was a junior in high school. Every summer I interned in a different division of the company through college 
So I got exposed to kind of the entire spectrum of, of real estate, which was a really unique and very awesome opportunity. So that by the time I was in my junior year of, of college, I already had my real estate license. I knew I wanted to go into brokerage. I knew I wanted to do healthcare, which is, I think, compared to my peer group, it's really rare at that stage to kind of know what you, what mm-hmm. you think you want to do. And that's evolved a lot um, mm-hmm. as I've gotten into the field in terms of what pieces, parts I do, but kind of always, always had that uh, desire and direction. I guess it probably was good that I didn't go to the water park, but I do still <laughs> think my friends had more fun than I did that summer. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I love that story though. I mean, that's a great way. I mean, I, I hear that a lot from family, you know, generational family run companies as, you know, yeah, my Saturdays I'd go and, you know, be checking on air conditioners for, you know, with my, with my dad, <laughs> because he was too cheap to hire anyone. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so what do you think you'd be doing for a living if you weren't uh, in the healthcare real estate industry? Oh, that's an interesting question. And I don't know if I've ever actually contemplated that. I mean, I, I was still very attractive. So I started college um, pursuing an economics degree and tra- transitioned to finance primarily because I didn't want to go be a PhD economist and just sit around and think I wanted to do stuff. Um, so I, I still love econ. I love finance. Um, probably would have ended up you know, kind of in a corporate finance role somewhere. I love the consulting side of the business. I mean, I at this point in my career, wouldn't want to jump in and do the hours of an entry-level consultant, but I think I probably would have gravitated towards towards that industry or the private equity operating company side. So we've had an opportunity, mostly through our healthcare tenant relationships, but to get to know some of these um, really prolific healthcare investors that invest in the opcos. And I find that to be very fascinating. And yeah. similar to a certain extent to what we do, much more complicated, I always tell my friends in that industry that what they do is incredibly challenging compared to what we do. Cause I just have to find the spot that works for the tenant and then put them in right, it, right. staff it, hire it, all the equipment. I mean, all, all the nuances of what they do, not to mention the billing and the, the coding and um, payers and all that kind of stuff, but pro- probably would have ended up, you know, somewhere corporate finance consulting or, you know, hopefully still in healthcare, but, but I didn't have that entree into real estate, which I I'm very passionate. I love talking to, Kids. I mean, whether it's just interns that we have in our organization or going to speak to finance classes to open people's eyes to what real estate is, whether they go to the healthcare side of it or not, because I think in, in a lot of business schools, it's just not touched on or highlighted. I'm very, very biased because uh, yeah. I love real estate, but there's a lot of opportunity for great career paths in real estate, even if it looks different than what you do or what I do. Yeah. And I think the thing with teaching real estate in a class is, you know, you can teach the quantitative side, obviously in a class on spreadsheets and stuff like that. But I think the, the number one, you know, location, 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 never, it, it always is part of the equation because you can have something that looks great on paper, but when you go to visit it, you know, it's next to a highway or, you know, just something weird that all of a sudden you're like, uh, this is going to devalue it a little bit Yeah, and you can't, those fundamentals matter. Yeah. I mean, you, you just can't always teach it in a, in a classroom. So I think, you know, some of these college kids to really do real estate, you know, they have to have the, the in-class stuff and then they have to really go and, you know, work with somebody on the street, honestly, to, yep. to no, get their hands dirty and, and see it, touch it, feel it, work on some deals. And um, you, you still see projects where you know that it worked on the pro forma but it just right. didn't really work in real life. It's like, <laughs> well, you built that elbow space and that's always going to be vacant. Nobody wants to be there. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So what are, who are you listening to right now for news, inspiration or information? 
so I'm, I'm kind of old school. I still listen to the radio on the way to and from the office yeah. and um, listen to NPR news, which has you know, some pretty decent programming. I like listening to economic and finance business podcasts and stuff like that. That's more so when I'm traveling, so I'm going to the airport and download a few things to listen to on the plane. Recently, I've been I'm more of maybe a reader than a, a, a listener. Usually try to have one book I'm reading for pleasure and one book that I'm reading for, you know, whether it's self-improvement or business improvement. I love leadership and management stuff and the psychology of teams and high-performance teams. So always reading stuff like that. Right now, I'm reading a book called The Better Angels of Our Nature, which is a, a look into kind of the data behind uh, violence declining over the course of humanity, and then more specifically over the last century or so, which is kind of an interesting argument, just because it seems like everything is more violent. But um, a lot of that is news cycle related, or that when something does occur, we're much more aware of it uh, than we were at any point in human history. But I like reading things that kind of challenge my worldview a little bit with things where if somebody asks me, and, and when I tell people like, hey, I'm reading that book, and I'm it's taking me a while because it's 800 pages and it's fairly dry, but <laughs> you get to the point where you're like, oh, what, well, what, what are you reading? It's like, oh, it's this book about how there's less violence than there used to be. And, and people usually just kind of look at you like, what? There's less? So I, I like that kind of stuff. Another book I'm reading right now is called Doing Business by the Good Book, which is kind of a, a Christian faith perspective on different business scenarios. And that, that's kind of an easy read because it's got kind of individual, almost like case studies. And it was written by a guy that founded from scratch and grew a really large telecom and uh, and tech business. So I, I love reading that stuff too, where it's written by people that that I respect or that have achieved something. Right. Um, and then other than that, the kind of personal side, the pleasure reading stuff, a lot of it's historical accounts of things like Lewis and Clark Expedition, or recently I read a book called The Pioneers about the settling of the Western Territory, which was uh, just wild to think about that not that many hundreds of years ago, we had you know people coming into the wilderness and chopping down trees to carve out a homestead. Just pretty wild uh, to think about. <laughs> I know. It's crazy. Those are great reads. So what is one thing you do every day for healthy self-care? For me, it's uh, really just playing with my kids. So my, my kids' age ranges right now. I've got three kids and they range from three to nine. But the best unplug and kind of you know, de-stress for me is just to come come home and get into whatever they're getting into. So I could be jumping on the trampoline or playing tag or building Legos or, or any of that kind of stuff. I would say I struggled with that early in being a parent, partially because of a career focus. And that's something I'm pretty open with people about that. I, I probably wasn't the father and husband I wanted to be the first handful of years of my career, but trying to do more than just lip service to that prioritization in my life. And again, it's just my mental state is so much better if I can drop a couple of the stressors and just get down on the floor with the kids and, and do something. So I, I, I love that and try to be deliberate about actually playing with them, not just watching them or not just being present, but being, you know, being in whatever they're doing. And I've had a lot of great mentors around me that I, I recognize very much, especially with a nine-year-old already that I just remember <laughs> we just had that that's going to be fleeting. Try to capture that while I can. Yeah. Well, I think parenting is, and marriage, I think they're constantly growing and you're constantly learning. And uh, yeah, if you look at who you were when you were new to where you are now, as long as you're willing to grow and adapt, I think, because you're always learning how to hopefully be better. Yep. And, yep. Know. and hope, hopefully my wife would say something similar. If you ask her. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I don't think, I think both have to grow because I think, you know, everyone, yeah, everyone has to, to grow in the relationship for sure. And if anyone says they're perfect in it, they're just not being very honest with themselves. <laughs> yep, yep. Um, are leaders born or trained? So, and I mentioned before, I'm, I'm kind of been a, a student of leadership and that for me, that started in Boy Scouts when I was a kid, um, which was always very focused on focused on leadership skills and leading. And so I do think there's certainly some characteristics that are, that are born. There may be some personality traits, you know, charisma is hard to learn some of those things that do make people natural leaders. But I I think those kind of traits give you an opportunity maybe to be a leader. I would much more slant towards the leaders are built or trained or made. It's kind of something that, you know, honestly, like we were talking about with, with marriage or relationships that you're constantly working on it and you've got to be cognizant so outwardly cognizant and and look eq is something that's talked about a lot these days which is very very true but it's having that kind of eq and interactions or even when you don't have an interaction having an intuition of when you need to speak into somebody's work or check on what they're doing or offer to help even if you know that they don't need help just because you know that providing that encouragement will do will do them good so again usually my my bookshelf there's going to be a handful of stuff cycling through that's related to leadership and management and I always figure, you know, if I read a couple hundred pages, if I pick up one more good tidbit, that's mm-hmm. something I can integrate, then that's a win. Um, and so that's that's kind of the same mentality we talk about with our our executive team is kind of constantly focusing on that, constantly trying to improve that um, and invest the time in it. It really is just a big time investment. It is. It's, it's very easy to put the things down on a piece of paper and say, here are the six things I need to do to be a, a good leader. But unless you're actually investing the time with the people you're trying to lead, then none of those things can come to fruition. Um, so yeah, I definitely slant towards, towards built, but I mean, there's some people where they're just, you can look at a certain handful of examples. They're just obvious, natural leaders. And obviously that helps. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Patrick, this has been a wonderful interview. I appreciate your time very much. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm honored to be invited and really enjoyed the conversation. So anytime you want to chat, let me know. Awesome. Thank you. I'm grateful for you tuning in to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast with others. As a disclaimer, this podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and not intended for specific real estate investment advice.